The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... It was one of the most iconic buildings in San Francisco that had a very important past, but really needed to be looked at again to find a use that would bring new life back to the building. Transit is a vital part of connecting people in a city, but as new neighbourhoods are built and historic buildings repurposed... How crucial is this connection to transport? This week we're in Los Angeles to hear how a former drive-in cinema and car dealership site has turned into a new mixed-use neighbourhood focused on its connection to public transport. We're also further north in San Francisco to speak with adaptive reuse experts about the process behind turning an historic passenger terminal by the bay into a new market and space for the community. And finally, we hop in the driver's seat. We head to Romania to report on this year's European Tram Driving Championship and what skills it takes to win. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We start today's episode in Los Angeles where a new transit-oriented, mixed-use development wants to transform the city's west side. Sitting in the former home of a Martin Cadillac dealership, and drive-in movie theatre, the West Edge development aims to deliver an entire new neighbourhood for Angelinos, while being directly plugged into public transport, reinventing the site's historic connection with transit. Monocle's US editor, Christopher Lord, caught up with West Edge's designers, Vara Nakula and Matthew Hines, to hear more about preserving the site's history and the juxtaposition of old and new design elements. Let's have a listen. We're less than 500 feet from the metro, which connects downtown Santa Monica to downtown Los Angeles. Uh, We're also at a really iconic intersection of Olympic and Bundy, which both get about 40,000 cars per day. We really want to be the neighborhood center. And so we view a lot of people approaching this development, not only by car, but also from the metro and also walking from the nearby neighborhood. Now, a lot of people listening to this will think, well, of course you have public transport near new developments. That's just an obvious thing. But Matthew, that isn't actually so obvious here in Los Angeles, is it? It's not. Los Angeles has always been a car-centric city. The city has made really great strides in expanding the metro system. We also sit extremely close to the 405 and the 10 freeways to get a little bit more connectivity throughout the city. Those are the two big arteries that run through this city Now, I think we should probably get off this busy street because it's very noisy. But what the great irony, in a way, of this transit-oriented project is that it began life, didn't it, as 
a car showroom. Yes, it was a car showroom in its previous life. And even before that, it was actually a drive-in movie theater called the Pacific Drive-In. A lot of history here with the car-centric LA culture. Well, let's take a step inside. This new development, West Edge, sits about halfway between the beaches of Santa Monica and Beverly Hills. It was built from the ground up by developer Heinz on what was a family-owned car dealership. Here in the US, these dealerships are huge. They're typically row after row of cars, with a sales centre set back from the road. So it's been quite the transformation. And for a developer like Heinz, it's an opportunity to build on a grand scale. This is a true mixed-use project. So we have 200,000 square feet of office, which has all been pre-leased to Riot Games. We also have 600 residential units. So we'll have over 1,000 residents, most likely, in this project who are going to keep this active 24-7. And we really view the synergies between the office, residential, activating the retail, in addition to being a neighborhood destination for anyone who comes into or lives in this neighborhood to enjoy. So we're getting a bit of a behind-the-scenes look here, aren't we? This is just weeks away from opening. Matthew, just tell us a bit about where we are right now. So we're standing here in what we call the showroom. We have 42 feet of Apple Store quality, high visibility glass. And we see this as a branding opportunity for a retailer that wants to come in here and express their brand to a high visibility corner. And I think it's noticeable because all around us on the streets, if you look just through these huge windows, is all these big box stores that are very cut off, if you like, from what people can see inside. They're not very transparent. Just explain a little bit about exactly where we are standing right now and what it once was. So this used to be the corner identity for the Martin Cadillac dealership. And so you had a big Cadillac sign that essential and some cars on the corner, whatever the newest model of Cadillac would be that they were trying to sell for that year. So we view the showroom as essentially a look back at the past because we don't know necessarily what retailer will go in here. It could very well be the future car showroom of tomorrow. We are sitting here on five acres in the west side of LA. You don't get opportunities like this every day, every year, every decade, and create a mixed-use destination that also had space for pedestrians to come and enjoy on the ground plane. We have a half-acre pedestrian plaza that is going to be the center of activity here on the site. And then we're able to build up around it to create an urban core all here on the same site. This one is the leader. Only one can be the leader in popularity. In the model year that has just passed, purchases of Cadillacs were over double those of the nearest competitor. The family-owned Martin Cadillac dealership opened in 1974. And West Edge takes design cues from stately angular cars like the Eldorado, which were once sold here. In the open-air courtyard, for instance, there's vinyl seating akin to the original interiors. It's a nod to the family's legacy, even if their land is being used for something quite different. Only one can be the leader. Cadillac 74. More than ever, America's number one luxury car. Drive around LA and you'll see a lot of these vast dealerships. They're in the urban fabric and not just out in the sticks. Michael Manville is Associate Professor of Urban Planning at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. The city has sprawled around them and for a long time in California in particular, cities really liked the idea of having car dealerships and property owners liked them too. I mean, a car dealership could be quite lucrative. And for a time in California, actually for a long time, If you were a city official, a car dealership, even if you 
considered it sort of a bit of an aesthetic blight or, or not as urban as you might like, it could be a source of a lot of sales tax revenue. Yet the way Americans buy cars is starting to change. Smaller boutiques, looking more like Apple stores, have become the retail front for many luxury brands. Also, people now buy cars online, even if many do still often go to a dealer for a test drive. Of course, the car dealership isn't going away anytime soon. These are still very lucrative businesses, and West Edge is only one development. Here's Mike Manville again. I think there's a broader lesson that can be extracted from this, because when you think about what a car dealership is, it's basically just a giant parking lot. And even if car dealerships remain a very viable business in many urban areas, the fact is that what makes our landscape car-oriented in Los Angeles and in many other metropolitan areas around the country is just the sheer amount of parking lots. And we do have a huge opportunity in every city in the country to sort of scale back the amount of parking and particularly the amount of surface parking that dominates our landscape. And when you do that, it does open up lots of different possibilities because it enables not just more density and therefore more vitality and action, but it changes the way people interact with the street. Once walking is safer and more comfortable, more people are willing to take transit. I think all of us understand intuitively that a quarter-mile walk on a nice street with a big sidewalk and trees and shop windows you can look into is a very different experience than a quarter-mile walk next to a surface parking lot, interrupted by driveways, traffic roaring by you on the other side. So, there's an urbanism opportunity here as well. Indeed, a big part of West Edge's pitch is that it sits just a short walk to the LA Metro, even if it does also have a parking garage on site. I asked Varuna Kula and Matthew Hines whether there are more projects like this on their horizon. So we've seen more and more of those opportunities come up where we've been able to partner with great families, um, here in this case, the Martin family on this site. We're exploring right now entitling a mixed-use development on the Hollywood Toyota parcel, which would be very similar to this one in terms of having residential uses, a great place-making opportunity through the retail as well as an office building. So that's another huge car showroom for Toyota, potentially there with the opportunity to build on it. Is this a sort of goldmine, if you like, for developers like yourselves? A lot of these car dealerships might have been originally located in more fringe areas where they could piece together a big parcel of land. But a lot of American cities have been growing outward and they've been growing around these car dealerships. And so now you're seeing the dealerships where they're located, the land values are going up. There are better uses than having five acres of cars parked and being sold in one location. So I think you're seeing a lot of opportunities crop up where developers are seeing higher and better uses for that land. And the car dealerships are seeing opportunities to really unlock a lot of value that's in the land. For Monocle in Los Angeles, I'm Chris Lord. A report there by Monocle's Christopher Lord in Los Angeles. Trams have been a fixture of European life for more than a century. And as the years go by, they continue to hold their own. Tram technology is constantly evolving, as are the skills of the drivers. To gauge these, the European Tram Driver Championship was set up in 2012 with an inaugural run in Dresden. Since then, it's been held in cities across the continent. This year's edition took place in Oradia, in western Romania, on the first weekend of June. We dispatched our Vienna correspondent, Alexei Korolyov, to report on the event. And, though his being there had nothing to do with it... His home team came out on top. 
Ding, ding. Come on, Leonardo's proud. Come on. That's a fine kick. That is a fine kick, and all the pins are down. All the pins are down. Right, 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 right. Yes. Yes. If you're just joining us, this is the 10th European Tram Driver Championship Finals. We're in the beautiful Union Square in Oradea in western Romania, a city with a long history of tram driving. A history that goes back to 1906, in fact, when the first tramway was laid here. We've got 25 teams representing 25 cities from 19 European nations, as well as some smashing local musical talent. Let's give it a listen. Well, it's the first time that uh, this championship is in Romania, first of all. Liana Guka from Oradia's Transit Authority is one of the organizers. Being in Oradia, it's uh, very proud for us. Uh, because Oradia is one of the top cities from uh, the whole country. And it's a special championship because uh, it's been only in other big towns in Europe. So being on this list, it means something, I believe, for everybody. As in previous years, the competition consists of six parts, including an emergency braking exercise, a fire drill and something called tram bowling. That's where you use the tram to hit a huge rubber ball at a row of equally huge rubber pins. The more of them go down, the more points you get. Let's meet some of the contestants. Here's Team Oslo. My name is Amale Van Bagnoli from Oslo. We are three people, two competitors and one leader. This is our first time. So we've never done this before, uh, so I'm not going to be too bold to say anything, but I know we're pretty good, <laughs> so I hope we can surprise everyone. Andrea Ciaccarelli and Stefania Tendi are from Florence. Yes, we are Florence. And uh, we are very excited. It's so beautiful, so funny. Si, very, si, funny. very, very funny. Incredible, yes, incredible. It's yeah. a very big experience. The teams have naturally come with large contingents of supporters, Cheering for Nuremberg is Stephanie Döbel, herself a trainee tram driver. Yes, I'm also a tram driver. Um, I'm still pretty new to the job. I've been doing it for a month and I'm still in training. I will finish at the end of this year, hopefully. Mm. So for you, this is a learning experience as well. Very happy to be here. The weather is great. The team is great. It's been, it's been a joy to get to know the other team members as well and their cities. Well, there's one thing that's bugging me about all this. You know, in each city, the tram systems are different. And Very different, yeah. Brands and models and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that plays a big role in this competition? Yes. Well, um, I think our entire team thought that we would have had more time to get to, to know the, the, the tech and the trams. But, uh, well, it is a competition. But I think everyone's just here to have fun, to be honest. Katalin Schreiter is a former tram driver from the Hungarian city of Szeged, just across the border. How demanding, how hard is this job? Uh, if you catch the feeling of it and you feel your, your environment and your vehicle, it's, it's pretty easy. But you have to love this. Because if you don't love driving this big vehicle on rails, you can't do this job. You have to control it. You have to love it. Good. So what are the chances for Sagan? Uh, I have to say, they are the best. (laughs) (laughs) The European champion is...
Vienna! Alas, Seged didn't win, although it came a respectable ninth in the end. Instead, it was Vienna, my adopted hometown, that triumphed, followed in close second by Gothenburg, with Prague in third place. Granted, Team Vienna drivers Sandra Kaida and Andreas Keinrad may have had a slight advantage over the others. Here's their coach, Stefan Hackel, to explain. One of the two trams used for competition, we use them in our daily operations. So for at least that type of train, we probably have a not too slight advantage. (laughs) Still, they did their city proud. Curiously, though, the winning team doesn't automatically get hosting rights. Besides, Vienna already held the competition in 2015. So if you're wondering, as I was, what it was all about, here's Bogdan Bacila, one of the day's MCs, with some final words of wisdom. Yeah, this is new for me because uh, it's a very interesting competition. It's unique, I would say. You would never think that tram drivers can compete uh, like this. And uh, I feel that... The European uh, spirit is here, right? So many cities from all over Europe. I feel European knowing that people from Göteborg, from Oslo, come here to my town, my hometown in Aradia, and compete, which is actually a great feeling, because this is what means to be a European. Makes you feel connected. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the spirit of this competition, and uh, this is what we should start feeling that well, okay, I'm Romanian, he's from Norway, but actually we are all Europeans. For Monocle in Oradia, I'm Alexei Korolev. And finally today, we take our transit outlook to the water. Well, sort of. Like many cities around the world, San Francisco has a vast portfolio of historic buildings dotted across its urban landscape. But how does a developer a city authority, or a practice decide whether or not to retrofit an existing building. That's something adaptive reuse experts John Long and Ariana Ferencamp from Perkins & Will know how to answer. Together, they're behind some of San Francisco's most iconic adaptive reuse projects, including the Ferry Building. Built in 1898, it was used as the city's transit terminal for passengers arriving by train and seeking to cross the bay by ferry boat. But how do you decide whether to repurpose a building or whether it's better to bulldoze? Well, I'm happy to say that John and Ariana join me now. Welcome both to the show. John, let's start with you. Tell me a bit about the ferry building and the thought and the decision process of retrofitting it for a new use. The ferries were the way that people could connect to other places. For instance, if you had made the journey across the country, to come to San Francisco by rail, as an example, you get off the train in the East Bay, and then the last leg of your journey was by ferry to San Francisco. What happened, though, was that over time, as America's or the world's really love affair with cars began to grow, two bridges were built in San Francisco. The Bay Bridge, which opened in 1936, and the Golden Gate Bridge in 1937, People decided they would rather drive across the bay than take the ferry. And that really led to the building's demise. So when we looked at this building in the late 90s, it was one of the most iconic buildings in San Francisco that had a very important past, but really needed to be looked at again to find a use that would bring new life back to the building. 
So one of the things is certainly just the historic importance of the building. Another is, does it have good bones? And this one certainly did. But in just about every case, the building needs work. In our case, living in this part of the world, a seismic upgrade is pretty much assumed and a prerequisite, but also bringing in all new mechanical systems to make the building work. But perhaps most importantly is a program because it costs a lot of money to renovate these buildings and having a new use that brings in revenue to support the construction is what's so important. So in the case of the ferry building, the idea was to make it a market hall on the ground floor that supports the weekly farmer's market. And then what the developer called the economic engine of the building was the office space on the second floor. When you come to a project like this, how important is it to not only keep the silhouette of the building, but try and keep some of the, what's inside, as you described it, the bones, because to be prepared for potential earthquakes in San Francisco, I presume that much of the foundations has to be changed, much of the, the structure internally has to be changed. Is there a trade-off that's going there that you, know, you can defend the silhouette, but defending what's inside is, is harder to maintain? Yeah, it can certainly be a challenge. Often, it's the exterior of the building that's focused on, and the interior either can be or needs to be modernized. In the case of the ferry building, which is an unusual case, it was really fully integrated inside and out. The way the ferry building worked originally was you got off your ferry at the second level of the building. You walked down passageways into what was called the Grand Nave. It's the 660-foot-long space that was really your welcome to San Francisco. Then you went down the stairs, picked up your bags, and went on your way. In this case, the idea was to really bring back the nave that had been infilled in the 1950s and 60s. This was a the second public-private partnership on the waterfront, preceded by Pier 1, just right next door. And the RFP said you have to just restore three bays of the nave. And what made our team really stand out and our proposal stand out is we said, we're going to restore the nave completely from end to end. And the idea was to put back the historic arches that had been torn out in the 50s and 60s and really bring back the space. And all of these projects were dealing with various state agencies, in this case, the Office of Historic Preservation, the National Park Service. We said, to make sense out of this building, we wanted to create openings in the floor of the nave that didn't exist before to connect the ground level, which was originally the baggage handling, and in our proposal would become this market hall so that you had a visual connection from ground you know, all the way up through the nave to the skylights above. And this is something that was very controversial because those openings weren't there originally. But in this case, the integration of seismic upgrade, all new systems, and the architectural expression was completely integrated inside and out. Ariana, let's bring you in here because I, what's fascinating there hearing John talk is, you know, that there are two things at play in that kind of impulse to protect the a historic building because, you know, there is the story of a city clearly and it's fascinating to hear how it changed in significance and its importance to San Francisco. But I guess also there's contained in the in the very materials and the ambition of the building a kind of a snapshot of the society at the time and how it felt about building and its outward look. Now, I know another one of the things that you're keen to think about when you approach these buildings is its connection to neighbourhood, its role for community. 
How vital is that, do you think, to import as you begin to reimagine these existing buildings? That's extremely vital, I think. I mean, as architects, we're always considering the site and the neighborhood context in which we're sort of operating. You know, adaptive reuse, I think, is a great way to promote our cultural heritage by recycling instead of tearing down those buildings because it preserves a local sense of place. Oftentimes, there are some character-defining features in the inside of the building that we're asked to keep intact. And when you sort of work around those spaces and be creative and thinking about how to retain those spaces, how to do the seismic retrofit so that you're not destroying those spaces, it often can result in interesting and unexpected spaces because the transformation of use lends itself for an interesting interior environment, you know. So in Building 12, so it's interesting because Building 12 was built in 1941, so quite a bit after the Ferry Building, but is on Pier 70, right on the waterfront in San Francisco. There were elements on the inside of the building that we were asked by the planning department, the Port of San Francisco, to keep intact. This building also is a market hall, a maker's market hall, maker space on the second floor, and then office space on the third floor. And that huge interior volume was where the ships, the steel plates for the ship holes used to be cut because Pier 70 was a sort of known for shipbuilding during World War II. That's when it reached its heyday. So in order to cut these steel plates in the, the main level of Building 12, they needed this huge volume. And it's really stunning when you walk in there. And so we were able to insert a second level, but because we wanted that volume to be legible, we inserted the second level only on the north, or I'm sorry, on the east and the west side. So it's sort of flanking either side of this big 40-foot tall market hall. And so with our seismic retrofit in this building, we didn't try to hide it. We inserted steel brace frames and we painted them bright red. A lot of our new interventions in that building are painted sort of this deep red color so that you can see that texture of time both inside the building and outside the building. You see the old coexisting with the new. So you see those interventions. And I think that actually creates this interesting space because it sort of shows us who we were then and who we are now. And had they just sort of raised all of Pier 70 or bulldozed all of Pier 70 and built new buildings there, we would have lost that sense of place. You know, Pier 70 has such a history here in San Francisco. I mean, it would be a shame to just have all new construction there without also having these sort of precious old buildings there to enjoy alongside the new. It's fascinating hearing the an attempt to use the bones of the building to honour its past. How important is that? honouring and echoing of what happened before. I guess you want to walk into the building, as we said, and and still have some sense of the original scale and the audacity of the engineering and architecture that was first put in place. Is that something that plays on your mind as you begin to look at these projects? The history of the buildings is just so fascinating. The most important buildings that we've worked on in San Francisco, the Ferry Building is one of them, Pier 1, just to the north of the ferry building, is another where they have their original use. So the ferry building was a ferry terminal. Uh, It was actually in the 1960s, people said, let's just tear it down. We don't need this building anymore. And, you know, thank uh, heaven that that never happened. Pier 1 was originally a sugar warehouse, and we converted that from a warehouse to office space. And so we found that these buildings, as we find them, have their original historic use. Then there's these bad things, in our opinion, that people did to them, largely in the 1950s and 60s. And then we're able, through our clients, to find a new use, really acknowledge those important historic elements, but also find programmatic elements, architectural elements 
that can give also a contemporary interpretation that's more aligned with the proposed use. So you become a little bit of a history buff in this, but also very much grounded in the reality of what it's going to take to be able to fund these historic renovations and work collaboratively with the many agencies. And in our case, it's the Office of Historic Preservation based in Sacramento, the National Park Service. So we follow, it's called the Secretary of the Interior's Standards for Historic Rehabilitation. So we have to toggle our way through these standards and negotiations with the Office of Historic Preservation to be sure we're respecting those character-defining features that Ariana mentioned but also, realistically, we need to do things to these buildings to modernize them, to make them function. Ariana, just before we leave you both, could you tell us, when we, we read about San Francisco these days, you see um, numerous stories about the decline of the downtown, about the lack of need for office space, about a changing architectural and cultural landscape in the city as people move to remote working the kinds of projects and the kinds of ways that you reimagine these existing buildings. Many of these are, are big cultural centers and you can see how they would attract people to the downtown, play a vital part in any future growth for the city. Do you see that there's a, an onus on you to help reimagine a broader San Francisco as you look at these reuse projects? Yeah, I would say so. Definitely. There's been a lot of talk in San Francisco and I think other major cities about how do we revitalize the downtown cores and in California, especially a lot of talk about converting office to housing because we have such a housing shortage in our state. You know, I think something has to happen on the policy level to incentivize developers to go in and, and do these kinds of projects. I guess one advantage to doing adaptive reuse in this sense, in the sense of time and money, is that the entitlement process can be quicker because you're not building a new building. So as we go through entitlements with the planning department, if the footprint and the height of the building stays the same, and if you're keeping the facade, then that process, which can sometimes take years, can be shortened. I think we all live in cities because we <laughs> we enjoy what a city has to offer, right? I mean, cities can be really beautiful. They bring people together. And so I don't think that anybody who lives here wants to see our downtown die. I think by working together, we can come up with the next sort of iteration, whatever form that takes and whatever it looks like. Ariana Ferencamp and John Long from Perkins and Will, thank you for joining us. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from around the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week and subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. To play you out this week, here's S. Kiyotaka and the Omega Tribe with Transit in Summer. Thank you for listening, city lovers. City lovers.